Last week, Alabama disrupted the news cycle when Governor Kay Ivey signed a bill into law that makes it a felony for doctors to perform abortions in most circumstances, effectively outlawing abortion in the state. Now, many other states have passed and plan on passing abortion restrictions as well. This week, we thought it would be fitting to rebroadcast our episode that talks about the left's response to abortion restrictions like this and says the things they don't want to say when talking about abortion. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This week's episode is a little different, as we will be featuring some medical descriptions that might be considered graphic. While the issues discussed this week are very much a part of the mainstream, we just wanted to be sensitive and give you time to make appropriate adjustments. Okay, let's get into it. From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. paying attention to the news, you've probably heard that several left-leaning states like New York, Vermont, New Mexico, and Virginia are passing and pushing for pro-abortion legislation that would make abortions available through all nine months of pregnancy. Here's Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York and Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia. So I want to take it a step further. And I want to pass this year a constitutional amendment that writes into the Constitution a provision protecting a woman's right to control her own reproductive health. We'll pass it next year. We'll put it on the ballot. We'll write it into the Constitution. And we'll be able to say protected women's rights in a way no one else has before. That's what we're going to do. When we talk about third trimester uh, abortions, these are done uh, with the consent uh, of obviously the, the mother, with the consent uh, of the physicians, more than one physician, by the way. Um, and it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities, there may be a, a, a fetus that's non-viable. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mothers. It's easy to talk about choice and use broad terms like women's reproductive rights, but it's not always easy to understand what this means. For full clarity on what the left wants on demand, here's the process of a third trimester late-term abortion. And remember, this is just one of many abortion processes they're pushing for. (laughs) 
At this point of the pregnancy, the baby is 25 weeks to term. Almost fully developed with 10 fingers, 10 toes, and typically capable of surviving outside of the womb. The baby can feel pain and its brain is rapidly developing. This process is very dangerous and poses many risks to the mother's health. It will take three to four days to complete the abortion. Day one. The woman will visit the abortion clinic and the doctor will start the process by using a large needle carrying a lethal amount of a heart drug called digoxin. The doctor will inject it into the mother's abdomen. The target? The baby's head, heart, or torso. The intended result of digoxin is cardiac arrest. Once injected, the baby will likely die, and the mother will carry around her dead baby until the follow-up visit the next day. Day 2. The doctor may perform a second ultrasound to ensure the baby is dead. If the baby is still alive, the doctor will administer a second injection of digoxin to finish the job. After this, the woman typically leaves the clinic and waits for day three. If she goes into labor while outside of the clinic, she will give birth at home or her hotel room, where she's advised to sit on a bathroom toilet. She could also report to an emergency room. On day three, if the mother has not yet delivered the baby, she will give birth to her dead child. If the baby does not come out whole, the doctor will then conduct a procedure called dilation and evacuation, or DNE. They will use forceps and clamps to dismember the baby still in the womb, pulling out arms, legs, the torso, and if the skull is too big, they will crush it and take it out piece by piece. They may even use a suction device or a curette to scrape the inside of the uterus to ensure the remains are fully extracted. But what if the baby is actually born alive? What if it survives the abortion attempt? Here again is Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia. If a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mothers. And let's be more specific, Governor. If the decision to terminate is made, according to two medical doctors knowledgeable on the subject, it's likely the baby will either be left to die on its own or it is lethally injected with potassium chloride or a similar drug. But don't worry. It was kept comfortable. And we don't share this lightly. It is, however, important to understand fully what lawmakers are advocating for. And for them, it's easier to use broad words like choice or health or reproductive rights instead of describing it. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, 
An abortion is a protected right. But the right was not recognized as absolute, meaning some restrictions can apply. Since Roe, subsequent cases have enabled states to limit the scope of abortions and have placed limitations on how late an abortion can be performed. But now, the left is fighting to repeal these laws, to pave the way for unfettered abortions at any stage. So what is at stake? Melanie Israel is a research associate in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society here at the Heritage Foundation. This week, she explains the heritage view on the laws coming out at the state level and the proper role the federal government should take in order to protect life. Melanie, this is obviously a, it's a very difficult topic. There's a lot of emotion here. And I know in my prep over the last week, I have, uh, I felt like I've aged a little bit in researching something that I've not done a deep dive into, I don't think ever in my life. Recently, we've seen a few left-leaning states pass and attempt to pass pro-abortion measures. New York, for instance, just signed into law sweeping reforms that would allow abortions on demand up to birth. And of course, we heard Governor Northam give a chilling description of the process of a child being born alive, making it comfortable, and then deciding whether it lives or dies. I know there have been many pro-life victories throughout the last decade at a state level, but are things shifting the other way? I think what we've seen happening is that the other side is waking up. They really started noticing this state-by-state strategy that pro-life legal groups have been at for a decade with the model legislation and going in and helping legislators craft these laws to be able to withstand court challenges, being very specific in crafting these bills specific to the circumstances in that state. It was a very strategic effort. It's still a very strategic effort. And the other side, I think, was really sitting on their hands, taking for granted the fact that Roe is the law of the land. Um, And while they were sitting on their hands, we ended up with Half the states now have a pain-capable unborn child protection act, um, things like that. And so in more recent years, they've been seeing all these successes at the state level to protect life. And so now we're seeing groups like Planned Parenthood, Center for Reproductive Rights, trying to mimic what these pro-life groups have been doing for a very long time to try to expand um, abortion. And so that's kind of what's been driving these proposals in states like New York, Virginia, Vermont, Rhode Island, New Mexico. And and what are some of these, uh, give, me, give me some of the specifics of these bills that are being proposed and passed, um, now I guess in these blue states. Uh, right, right. They're, they're going into very abortion-friendly states. Okay. Um, and the, the, the proposed bills vary state by state, of course, depending on um, the existing laws in those states. But in general, what they're trying to do is to allow abortion for any reason through all nine months of pregnancy. And they're able to do that by essentially carving out so many loosely defined exceptions for things like life of the mother, health of the mother, but leaving it very, very vague um, so that an abortionist could pretty much say anything is a health risk. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, and, and, and maybe we can get into this a little more later, but 
I always hear that when the Democrats or the liberals talk about about abortions and justifying abortions. We have to do this for the health of the mother. And I know that you've written on this. I know that you've spoken on this. Can you can you talk a little bit about the health of the mother in terms of an abortion or a late term abortion? Sure, sure. Um, well, we we know that there can be complications in a pregnancy that do pose a very serious threat to a mother's health. Something like preeclampsia that is a very very serious condition. But when we're talking about a late term abortion procedure, it takes time. I know that that's something that we explored a little bit here at the beginning of the podcast. It, it's it's not a quick procedure. And if you are truly in a situation where your life is threatened, you don't necessarily have time to sit around and wait for this late-term abortion procedure to be carried out. However, a C-section is a, a relatively quick process in comparison. And it's a procedure that can still result in a live baby. And so a doctor would be able to treat the two patients, the mother whose life is at risk, and the baby who's also an innocent living person. And so the the idea that um, these late-term abortions are only being done um, to save a woman's life, it's just not true. We know from an academic paper that actually was done by the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood's former research arm. This is a pro-abortion organization. They have admitted in a published paper that the majority of late-term abortions are not because of a life or a health risk. They are elective procedures, and thousands of these procedures happen across America every year. So why don't we just move to Washington right now? Catch us up a little bit on what's been going on here in a response to some of these states that are passing pretty intense pro-abortion bills. I know there was a vote last week. So why, why don't you just catch us up a bit here? Sure. So in the, I guess, initial fallout of what we saw happening in both New York and Virginia, Senator Sass, who's the lead sponsor of the Born Alive um, Abortion Survivors Protection Act, actually went down to the Senate floor and asked for unanimous consent that the Senate pass this bill. It should be a, a bill that can pass with unanimous consent. It simply says that newborn babies, regardless of the circumstances of their birth, will be given adequate medical care. Um, that shouldn't be a controversial position. What does adequate medical care mean? It would depend on the exact situation, but it, it would mean that at the very least, a baby is not left on a cold, hard table completely unattended to just die eventually. Um, And unfortunately, that's what the status quo allows right now. And so Senator Sass asked for unanimous consent. A Democratic member of Congress objected. And so the Senate went through regular order um, so that every senator would have an opportunity to vote on the bill, to have a roll call vote. And unfortunately, it did not meet the 60-vote threshold that would have been required um, to proceed to a final vote. Now, that doesn't mean that the bill is completely dead in the Senate. Um, they could still try to to move it other ways. But over in the House, they're working on a process called the discharge petition. Um, with Republicans being in the minority, they don't control the vote schedule on the floor. But this petition process, which does take quite a few weeks just because of the rules of how the process is set up. In theory, if they can get 218 members of Congress to sign on, then that would force a vote in the House. And so that's something that 
House members are working on actively right now is trying to to get members to to come across the aisle and say we might disagree on a lot of things, but providing health care to newborn living babies is not something that we disagree on. So then the pushback is health of the mother. <laughs> what what is the pushback from the, the Democrats the here? I mean, you have fifty four been... votes. All we have, all we were able to get is fifty four votes on this basic idea here. I mean, how are they taking this to their voters and saying I'm voting against this? It has been, I, I think, the best way to describe the pushback is bizarre and incoherent. It it, it doesn't make sense. Um, when the Senate was debating this bill the other week, we saw floor speeches from members talking about how this is infringing on a woman's right to abortion, which is nonsensical. The abortion already occurred and the child survived. It, it has nothing to do with a person's access to abortion. They had the access to the abortion. The abortion didn't work. Now there's a living newborn baby. Um, we heard members saying that this bill is a solution in search of a problem, that this doesn't actually happen, which is, again, demonstrably false. The public record at both the state and federal level shows that, yes, babies can and are born alive following an abortion procedure every year in states across across the country and not just in America. This happens in other countries, too. Government data from places like Canada, Australia. In Australia, um, <laughs> some of the government counseling recommendations for women having a late-term abortion includes the suggestion that the abortionists talk to the woman about what they should do if the abortion doesn't work. This is not a, a theoretical problem. This is not a hypothetical situation. It can happen. It does happen. And this this bizarre defense to say that there's no such thing as an abortion survivor um, ha, has really just been willful ignorance. We had abortion survivors on Capitol Hill trying to speak with members, women like Melissa Oden. Um, it, it says on her birth certificate she is an abortion survivor. It, it's an undeniable matter of public record. Let's talk a little proactive, maybe not positive, but cheerful ways of, of continuing this fight. Probably a lot of people listening are frustrated right now and wondering what's next. So with this, you mentioned it a little bit. You could bring this up again for a vote in the Senate and there's hope in the House. But how do you see this playing out over you know the next few weeks, months? You know, I think one of the things that we'll have to remember, given the current political climate in Congress, is that while there might not be as much action as people would hope to see at the federal level, there is still room for great success at the state level. Roughly half the states have some sort of Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And so that's something that state legislators can look at. They can look to see if their existing law is sufficient Do they have a law at all? Is this something that they need to propose in their individual state legislatures? But also thinking ahead to what the pro-abortion side is doing. They're very well-funded. They're very good at messaging in um, very euphemistic terms to try to paint this in terms of, of choice and bodily autonomy and all kinds of things that ignore the humanity of the unborn person. Um, But these well-funded activists are going into states across the country, and these laws are being proposed all over the place. It's not just New York. It's not just Virginia. And so folks really have to remain vigilant. Watch what the other side is doing because they, especially given everything going on at the Supreme Court, other potential retirements, 
it's something that the other side is getting very, very concerned about. They they see a threat to abortion. And you look at the polls, too, which are shifting towards ideas on the right instead of the left. I wonder if they're paying attention to that as well and if they have a plan for that. I mean, despite their best attempts here, they're losing, in at least in public sentiment. So I wonder if their strategy will be to change that at all. I think it'll be interesting to see how they respond to this new polling. We know that in light of what's been going on in New York and Virginia, even among people who identify as pro-choice, they see this debate, which it seems ridiculous to even call it a debate, but this debate about infanticide. Even among Americans who are pro-choice, they're thinking, "Mm, no, you know what, infanticide, that is a bridge too far. I am not that far to the left. And so I, I do think that some of these radical pro-abortion groups have, in a lot of ways, overplayed their hand. I, I think they're overestimating the enthusiasm, um, especially with rank-and-file Americans. Now, with politicians who are accepting their campaign funds, that's maybe a, a different calculation. But with the American people sitting around the dinner table, it, it's been very telling in the polls, and I think unsurprising to a lot of people. Infanticide, that's just not something that the American people can get behind. Melanie, I know the work that you do is very hard, and I'm so thankful that you're doing it, though. So really appreciate you coming in today. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of Heritage Explains. We wanted to say a special thank you to our friends at Live Action for providing and guiding the content of this episode. We'll link to their website in the show notes, so please go check them out. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it going by visiting www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift.